there is a fairly hefty uh, military bias uh, for this final quarter of the meeting, so uh, I think I say something like, on parade, or words to that effect. Uh, my Lord, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this uh, session. Can I actually just um, uh, echo David Barnard's um, opening comments in terms of thanking uh, Sam uh, Mick Crumplin and all of the others involved in this meeting because it's been, uh, I think, one of the best I've been to uh, in this college, irrespective of uh, the topic being um, the topic of the meeting. Uh, disparate apparent two presentations now before we have a naffy break, um, surgery and art. Uh, but if you take a slightly abstract approach, uh, despite all the technical advances in surgery up to date. As far as I'm concerned, there are aspects of surgery that are still an art, and I would make that link. I also make the link that uh, perhaps art in all its forms has been, in terms of reportage, has been better than the written word in some, uh, in some ways in terms of um, chronicling war. Um, Greco-Roman friezes, uh, for example, um, the Bayer Tapestry, albeit a retrospective, um, the Overlord Tapestry now. But there's possibly something special if you do that reportage firsthand. And I've no doubt that Julia will tell us about that. Let me uh, ask Jim Ryan to start off by telling us about changes and advances in surgery from the Hawkins, where he did some of the surgery, to the current time, current date. Jim, please. Colonel Peter, thank you very much indeed. I'd like to, if I could, ladies and gentlemen, to extend my thanks and my admiration for Sam, Mick, and for Haley. Uh, they've done us proud. It's been a memorable meeting, and I hope that. Uh, I can continue in that vein. One of the advantages, ladies and gentlemen, of reaching my age and joining the army at a young age is you see a lot. Um, I, I joined in 67, and finally, as Peter will know, they found me out when I was seven, 60, 67, up and, and the TA rang up and said, <coughs> you're 67 years old, get the hell out now. No thank you for all that service. But anyway, to be serious, it does allow you um, to cast an eye over um, campaigns running over 35, 40 years, which is unusual. So, from the Falklands to Afghanistan and Iraq, radical change in the care of war-injured soldiers. There's no question, nobody in this room, I'm sure, would question the fact that there's been fundamental change in, over that 25, 35, 40-year period. But the reason I start with Afghanistan is it's a bellwether date for me because Afghanistan links backwards to the Second World War to the First World War and even to um, the Boer War in 1900. So many links. And as I will say and show, I hope, a surgeon teleported forward from the Veldt in 1902 into Ajax Bay and the Falklands would see very little different from his day. But thereafter, everything would change. So let's look at that war because I think it is uh, a very useful period for us to start with. 
That's a little bit of history for you. You probably all know this. But it was a war that came out of the blue. And certainly my wife, when I was told I was being mobilized, said, you will sail around the Isle of Wight and you will come home. None of us thought it would actually come to pass. It did. And it was quite different. It had real problems. And I think we need to look back with some admiration uh, to our colleagues in the Royal Navy and the Army and the Air Force for mounting an operation so far away from home in midwinter, and an appalling winter at that. This was the medical plan then, uh, basically written on the back of a fag packet as people went down, because Mrs. Thatcher, almost as soon as the islands were invaded, said, go back and take them. So there was very little time to sit down and plan in a normal way. But it was agreed that there would be successive lines of medical support. There would be buddy aid. Uh, each battalion would have its own regimental aid post and its regimental medical officer. There would be a field ambulance on shore, at least one. There'd be a full field hospital need. Was that, that need was identified, and they planned to put one uh, not ashore, but on hospital ships. And then Kazivak was also an issue. The best laid plans of mice and men, of course, ladies and gentlemen, because what actually transpired was, first of all, I will use that modern word now, two regimental medical officers and their teams for the battalions, because they were going to be working essentially at nighttime and in isolation over uh, a, a, a battlefield with no roads and no transport. Second rule, it was realized very early on that the hospital ships could not simply stay at their moorings and provide third support because they were in basically combat areas and were going to be bombed. So there was a very urgent need, again, back of a fact packet and very quickly by Rick Jolly and others, to get surgical support ashore into an area where there were no roads and virtually no buildings. And in fact, what they had to do was to move into a refrigeration plant, which I shall show you in a moment. The third rule, Uganda and Canberra, on an ad hoc and when they could basis, would come in ashore, usually at night time, to take off the wounded when they could. And then uh, <coughs> ambulance evacuation by sea and RAF Aeromed um, from Montevideo. That was the plan then. Just look at this photograph. This is Captain Steve Hughes, Regimental Medical Officer, 2nd Battalion of the Parachute Regiment at Darwin Goose Green. I put it to you, that could be the Second World War, the First World War, Crimea, or even earlier. Out on the gorse, in winter, heavy clothing, the gorse on fire, freezing cold, within range of mortars and machine gun fire, litter all around them. What can you do as a medical officer in that situation? The answer is very, very little, apart from quick triage and move people back to an area where it is possible to treat them. You cannot treat people there. And that, of course, affected Steve greatly in the years ahead because so many of his friends died. This is second role. This is the the, the meat packing shed in Ajax Bay, which was built in the 1940s, late 19, uh, early 50s, to basically store and freeze mutton, which would be sent to Korea for the troops. That never happened. The war ended too quickly. And so it was the only building around with no windows and no doors. And we're looking in this slide at the back of it where the Royal Marines lived and who were bombed and, and injured and killed, and the bombs coming through into the hospital, but thank God they did not explode. Not an ideal environment when you think of Helmand and I think of um, what we have now for surgery. The medical dedicated helicopters that would have been were on the Atlantic conveyor and that ship was sunk. Consequently, there were no dedicated helicopters and what you see here is a Sea King uh, and um, another helicopter which were basically uh, fighting helicopters but coming forward on an opportunity or backwards on an opportunity basis taking the wounded with them, often with no medical on board. Not ideal. Not what was planned for. And then into the operating theater. This is, and my Navy colleagues will, will recognize, I'm sure, the redoubtable George Rudge, uh, a very distinguished man and a larger-than-life individual, a, a very, very quiet, thoughtful man who was very reassuring to his juniors, maxillofacial surgeon. That's my table. That's my MacVicker table. Note the electric light bulbs. 
And the, that black blanket, or that gray blanket, they were making those for the Boer War. Those, those, I'm sure even before that. This was medieval. Um, and yet, somehow, it worked. And here, well, just to, now this is, of course, any of you will recognize this wonderful man, Colonel Bill McGregor, now sadly dead, who was the master surgeon in the old style. Um, everyone sat at his feet. We had him, he was, in fact, the only consultant surgeon we had on the army side. There was also one consultant on the navy side. And this was basically a master apprenticeship uh, system at work where the master walked around largely uh, staying back and watching his juniors and stepping in when they needed assistance. Charles Batty's in the background being taught by Bill. And please note the young man holding the bag valve mask device. That's an OTT3. He's about 19 years old, and the anaesthetists present are outside in, 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 the, um, in the triage area resuscitating people. No intubation, no ventilators. I'll come back to that presently. And here is the accommodation and the wards. Um, this is actually, again, un I'm quite sure will be instantly recognized by colleagues going back 100 years before. Uh, the beds were stretchers on trestles. And there's occasional blankets, but there's, there's, not, there's really not, not much else. And the staff sleep on the ground beside them. Here's a, just a, a summary slide of the capacity and capability. OD, OTTs, ODPs only, no theater nurses, no female staff. Nursing by CMTs and MAs, that's medical assistants and combat medical technicians, no linen. Chemical cleaning of sets, two lab techs who could group and limited cross-match only, no imaging, no physio, and co-located with the infantry and marines, therefore no Red Cross protection. Not ideal. Austere? You bet it was. Um, but my worry, and here I expressed one of my first anxious moments, there are people who are saying, that's the past. That'll never happen again. Well, I, I'll come back to that, but I do wish them well. I just put in an extra slide here. Look at the top painting alongside Steve Hughes, and this is the First World War VC winner, and you can see the similarity. And George Rudge again carrying out triage, um, and the others you've already seen. Now, 82 was a watershed, a bellwether moment, because basically thereafter, we came back full of beans, thinking we had done a wonderful job, and I recall a, a, an excellent meeting in this, in this college, not in this room, whereby we clapped ourselves on the back and said we'd never been equaled. Uh, we, we weren't telling lies. We were just mistaken. I think we, we, we did do very well. Only two, Rick Jolly's right, only two people died in Ajax Bay having got in there alive. But how many died of wounds out on the battlefield because we had no means to evacuate them in the dark and many, many hours of delay happened. So I'm quite sure the, the low, died, <laughs> the, the low um, died of wounds is, is because we had a very high killed in action. And that's irrefutable. And I think people slowly began to see that was a problem. And be, we began to talk, and we began to talk to our allies. And there was a need for change. There was a, a growing need that things could not be that way again. Um, we had a number of little wars, short wars, to help us on our way. Um, the Gulf War, uh, Bosnia, Kosovo, Sierra Leone. And here, very often, we were alongside NATO allies who were looking very carefully at our kits. And my god, fourth richest economy in the world. And that's the kit they got for operating. So there's pressure mounting. And also journalists, I operated, as Peter did, in Bosnia uh, in, the, in, the late in, the, in the 90s, when we would have BBC journalists outside our operating theatre caravan saying, there's a guy in there called Jim Ryan operating, on a chap has been shot in the chest, he's doing a thoracotomy, I hope he lives, I hope he does too. Uh, <laughs> but things began to change, pressure, and I think, I'm, I'm going to read something I wrote in an article at the time. Things would change, albeit very slowly, and I think very grudgingly, the drivers for change were political will, 
pressure from journalists and increasing awareness among servicemen and women of medical advances. Mrs. Thatcher, answering questions in the House of Commons, is alleged to have said a British soldier in the future, wounded, uh, wounded in, in battle, is entitled to the same standard of care as someone injured on the M25. I don't know if she said that, I can't find it, but she's alleged to have said it. We, we all quote that. Um, that. I think there was, there was change, uh, uh, movement for change across a wide area. And, and I think that was quite nice to see that. We began to see field ventilators. We began to see pulse oximeters, dynamaps. I remember in this college in 1983 when we had the wash-up for the Falklands and a young TA major, uh, Bernard Riley, an anesthetist from Nottingham, um, stood and asked a question at the end of a presentation from the, uh, a, a brigadier or a, 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 a commodore, air commodore, Black Jack McLaren, and said, why weren't there ventilators in the field? And howls of derision arose from the audience and said, shut up, shut up, bloody pussycat. There are, are no ventilators. There never will be ventilators. Get used to it, Jack McLaren said. How wrong he was. Um, but that was the attitude, change, changing uh, the minds of quite senior people. And now we come to the present. And this is the beginning of the present, if you will. This is the early months, early moments. And I love these pink, shimmering field hospitals. I've done, loved, loved them ever since I was a young captain. There's something truly romantic about them, I think. Okay, I'm crazy, I accept that. But this is, this is an old design, but not old inside, because now we've got a fully equipped A&E department that you would recognize a fully equipped ICU that you would recognize, and the toys that you would expect in leading. That's, that is the journey that we have made, or had made, between 1982 and the beginnings of that campaign. Let me just take you through some interesting, I think, pictures. Remember George Rudge operating on my table in 82, and now look at this. Yes, they've now got a proper operating table. They've got linen, and yes, it's a tent, but if you look around that operating room, you'll see every toy you could imagine that you would want. Dynamaps, pulse oximeters, field ventilator, um, and all, uh, all the, the backup that you would expect to go with that. So a, a, a fantastic movement in less than 30 years. And in fact, if we go back 30 years before and 30 years before, things didn't change. Things, we thought things had changed, but they hadn't really changed. Because there were a lot of old guys, and I'm looking at uh, Brigadier <coughs> Chris looking at me, uh, in the audience when I was a young lad, saying, you know, don't force change. It will not happen. It will always be this way. It's war. It's austere. Get used to it. So, but I'm afraid we have moved forward. But there's a, there's a sting in the tail, which you'll, you'll see in a moment. And this is some time later. It developed and developed in theater as the war went on. We're moving on here to an operating theater some years later, again in Shaiba in Iraq. And here we see proper theater lamps. And here we see basically a containerized system. Movement, progress, progress. ITU. Yes, it's a tent. This is, uh, this is the 2004, um, but it has everything. You look at the bed and compare the bed to the, 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 the stretchers that you saw earlier on. Here's an ITU fully equipped with first class, uh, mainly reservists, but some regular uh, ITU nursing staff, uh, basically first class and providing a first class service. And then finally, now we've gone from those tents you saw in that lovely uh, glamorous slide, Iraq in 2003, to the apogee. This is Helmand in, uh, as of now. And that is quite fantastic. Uh, that transition uh, that basically took place from the beginning of the war, up, and that we're talking about, what, 10, 11, 12 years. And the question I have for you, though, 
let me, let me, before I come to that, let me just say where we are now. And I'm, I'm going to quickly go through these because my Royal Navy colleague who will speak later in the afternoon will deal with these things in detail. But we're now working to doctrines. We're now working to what's on that slide, crew resource management, working to evidence-based, consultant-led, all the things the health service wants to do, ATLS and battles training, surgical training, craft workshops, and hospex up in York, which I, I shall come back to, and field craft. Operational clinical arena, forward resuscitation, Merton, uh, hemostatic resuscitation, blood, all of that, which will be discussed, I'm sure, by my Royal Navy colleague. All in the field, all basic. In fact, this is, we have now been taken, I believe, I'm going to take a risk here, slightly ahead of our civilian colleagues, who are now basically copying us. And it's Mert, with its, this, and this is a, such, such an important concept. When I was a young boy, General Sir Cameron Moffat, uh, who was the, uh, the master surgeon at that time, talked about the clock, the trauma clock. As soon as you're injured, the clock starts ticking, and it, 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 beyond a certain time, no matter what you bring to bear, it will be ineffective. And you're fighting the clock all the time. And this is an attempt, in a very sophisticated way, although a very dangerous way too, to beat the clock. You're going forward to the patient, and you're taking forward with you not just the people, but the equipment. And you're commencing a treatment, um, advanced treatment, outside the hospital. So you're interdicting that clock. But of course, you're also putting that team at grave risk of being shot down. And thank God, to date, that's not happened. But we got a little bit too, I think we waxed a bit too lyrical about Merton. There are people talking about it uh, here in this, this room on one occasion, talking about a surgical platform. It is not a surgical platform. It is an ambulance platform uh, with the ability to assess and treat und undermined by a high uh, degree of noise and vibration. It's a moving platform limited lighting and limited space. But nevertheless, it's a great leap forward for all of that. We saw these concepts of DCR and DCS coming in. Curiously, the, the, the cart before the horse, DCS came in first of all uh, in the States, and then adapted for battlefield use, and then DCR, now, now allowing us to start a continuum of care, DCR commencing whenever it's necessary, right through to surgery and a, and a seamless concept of care for the patient done by consultants. And finally, I tried, I was professor in, uh, in the year the first Gulf War started, and I approached, the, I won't name him, a very senior colleague, and I said I needed to get people forward because we, all, we were already basically working towards um, um, the need for data. And I approached him and said, I need to send some trauma nurse coordinators out with us. I need to gather data. He said, go away, silly boy. We, whatever space we have, we need for rifles and ammunition. Clear off. But fortunately, um, young Tim Hodgetts was more successful than me. And this is where we are now, linked to Birmingham and gathering all the data, which means we now have some of the best data around which can influence and direct and, 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 and uh, move towards change and share with our civilian colleagues. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's very largely nurse-led. Just some other matters. Training. Colonel Peter and I both had the privilege of being directors up in, up in York. This is a hospital training uh, module in a uh, what I believe used to be a, a big tank repair shed up in Strensel in Yorkshire. And it's a, essentially, it's a, it's a field hospital layout uh, with all the toys, including um, the beds and the ITU and the operating theatre, the A&E department, most of the equipment. And basically, you can take a unit and run it through this facility in real time with, uh, with uh, uh, role-play patients. You, the structure, the layout will be this virtually, not always the same, but virtually the same as what they'll encounter in the field. So they'll get used to the environment, used to the pace and intensity of work, used to the toys, and they're assessed. Other matters, 
we were told that we live in a time of an era of sub super specialization. Peter Roberts talks about surgical teams hunting in pairs. A good friend of mine from the Royal Marines was told some years before, after the first Gulf War, when we were deploying to, to protect the Kurds, you will not be treating women and children. You, don't need, you do not need any equipment. You're not getting any. Peter, you heard the story as well. He arrived with his team, <coughs> set up their tent, went to bed, got out of bed in the morning, opened the, the, opened the, the flap, and as far as the eye could see, were only women and children. There's now a realization, and I see Chris nodding as well, that we need to do this. Now, I know it's, the, it's, it's actually quite controversial in an era of, era of, of credentialing, but this is, for example, a gunshot wound of the uterus leading to a cesarean section, and of course, you also have to take care of the baby when the baby comes out. So these skills are required. How we achieve that in the future is a different matter. We also, you'll be very pleased to hear for the more senior gentlemen in the room, uh, colleagues in the room, that we have not discarded the well-worn principles uh, laid out by the Inter-Allied Conference in 1917 of managing the soft tissue war wound. They're still widely incised, widely, um, widely fasciotomized, excised and debrided, and left open with flap doors in the time-honored manner, and that still has not changed. Is that austere? Not really, unless you call the Royal London austere, unless you call Tommy's austere. It's moving towards, essentially, um, on the battlefield, what you'd get at home. The question is, will it always be this way? Uh, and that's a, a worry that I have. Can we guarantee that? Because what's happening now is, as I, at my venerable age, run into people in the House of Commons and the House of Lords sitting on various committees, I'm told by com uh, MPs, of course, this is, this is the norm now, guys. You're not going to let us down, are you? You now know what to do, don't you? So the next time, this will be fine. Well, I wish them well. It might not be. We shall see. Could we have to revert to this? We saw this slide earlier on. Um, Florence Nightingale in the Crimea. We could do. Or what about Henri Dunant and Solferino? We could do. Clinton Dent, who was a very distinguished um, surgical colleague working in the Royal London in around at the time of the Boer War, was sent with people like um, Treves and others to the battlefield for, for the first time, medical scientists on the battlefield to observe and look over the shoulders of the military and say, how are we doing, guys? And of course, as you know and have heard yesterday and again today, the Boer War, medically speaking, was very successful despite some criticisms. By and large, it was a long-range war on the high veldt with very little manured soil, light, light uniforms, and it was a Mauser rifle war. So. Basically, wounds tended not to get infected. We began to operate on the abdomen, selected cases. We had hospital trains. We had the beginnings of the modern era. Of course, we stepped back, didn't we, in 1914. But when Clinton Dent came back, and again, he had, I reckon he had a conversation very much like ones I've had with, with politicians who said, oh, it's all over. In fact, Clinton Dent was told by some of the politi medic medical political thinkers at the time, there is no longer a requirement for military medicine. What we did here, he said, was transport with the post-Lister era medicine onto the Boer War battlefield, and it worked. Therefore, why do we need military surgery? Why do we need professors? And Clinton Dent said that. A terrible awakening in store for us when we next have to face the hideous horrors of war amidst unfavorable surroundings. He wasn't the only one. Um, quite a few of, the, of those observers said, be very careful, guys. And of course, as this audience now well knows, we've had two days of this. Come 1914, we walked right into the hole in the ground, and it took months, if not the best part of a year, to dig ourselves out and start doing things properly. We, we picked up the wrong lessons for the wrong war. And a, 
that's of course George Santayana. But I, one of the reasons I, I prepared this presentation about a year or two ago was I got a phone call in 2009 from a guy called Colonel Jonas Björk, who was a Swedish staff officer, a tanky cavalryman, who said, would I come to Sweden and talk to their staff college, not the medical staff college, the staff college, senior staff college, uh, to discuss uh, medical matters vis-a-vis -vis the Falklands. And I said to him, Jonas, I'm, I'm very honored that you've asked me, but I do get the impression you might not have read too much about what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. Can I suggest that you get hold of my younger colleagues who are actually out there, up to their knees in it, to come and talk to you? Because they'll tell you where, where we are, state of the art. I don't need that. That happens in Stockholm hospitals. I, don't, I know all about that. I've got a big problem. He said, we, uh, you have uh, in UK concepts of operations. Who will attack you? Who will, you know, the black art of second guessing? He said, well, so do we. And our, our big guess is that the Russians will come down the centrist, central spine of Sweden sometime in the next 50 years in winter, and we'll be on the run. We will be basically moving fast. We'll be using our deep uh, coal, coal, <coughs> coal mines to protect our population. We'll be using our autobahns for our fighter aircraft. We'd be practicing surgery in our shirt sleeves, just like you did in the Falklands. That's why we want to know about the Falklands. We want to know about a war that is austere and basically very close run. We want to know what are the limits. And of course, I wasn't the only one. They had, they had a, an ex-Royal Marine uh, commando but, uh, <laughs> CO. They had logistic personnel, padres, medics, transport, navy. All of the guys who fought this austere campaign. And the Swedes wanted to get inside their heads because they reckon next time around for them, that's what's going to happen. And that basically there'll be no, uh, no, um, there'll be no concept of, of working like we did in Afghanistan. Ladies and gentlemen, I will leave you now. Uh, and uh, I always, as Peter knows, stay ahead of time. How fertile the blood of warriors. And from my back garden, my very own little patch of poppies. I think Jim would be uh, probably the first to admit that in terms of the Falklands, um, we got away with it. And the reason we got away with it, it was a people thing. The people that were there did what they had to do with what was available. So boy, we were lucky. Questions, comments? This is going to be the first paper with no questions. <laughs> Chris. Get the mic, uh, Chris, if you want, thanks. Thanks very much, Jim. Uh, it's a comment as much as anything in that I recognize everything that you say. Uh, I was served on some of those earlier operations and so did friends and we were horrified by the kit which hadn't changed from Korea or the Second World War. And there's no doubt we've come a long way. Uh, but I think you know there's a lot of truth in the maxim about train hard, fight easy. Yeah. And the encouraging thing from my point of view, before I left, the chain of, com uh, chain of command and the general staff in particular were already talking about the skills that had been lost. Uh, they recognized the danger of, of learning the wrong lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I think there is an appetite there for training in the future to rediscover some of the skills that we need. But I think what we've all got to think is how do we support those who are still serving to make sure that that message is continually reinforced. And it's not just the need to do the right sort of training to be able to operate in the most austere, i.e. the most challenging environments, but how do we ensure also that they don't make the other mistake from history 
of losing the funding during prolonged periods of peace. If we do happen to go through a period now where there are no conflicts, you, you will be sure, as Kevin Beaton always puts it, that the medics will be sucking on the hind teeth. Sure. Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, very quickly, if I just comment, uh, um, uh, Howard Champion, Professor Howard Champion in Baltimore has been tasked by the US government with just dealing with that concept of, he calls it um, um, maintaining the connection between the, the past and the present, the institutional memory, if you will, uh, which should be trained to and planned to. But he said he's finding it increasingly difficult. Um, Martin Bricknell, Martin. Um, I, I'm the person responsible for making sure that we um, bring everything from um, Afghanistan into core business. Um, I can reassure you that we have fought to replace the entire medical equipment, every single thing that we have learned from Afghanistan, and that will be complete by the end of next financial year. And we've brought all the kit back that we can possibly reuse from what's been deployed in Afghanistan. But looking to the future, the challenge is going to be that the people need to be as good as the people in the past and as multi-skilled as the people in the past because we're unlikely to deploy in the first elements of the next operation everybody that ended up being deployed uh, at the apogee. So back to my maxim that uh, the, the brain needs to be multi-skilled as well as the hands. Very quickly, just a, 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 the other, Martin, I, wasn't get, I hope you, no one thought I was getting at the system. What I was getting at is the, the nature of the future fight. We might, be, we might keep the memory, we might keep the equipment, but we simply might not, for operational reasons, be able to do it. And then uh, that's when the politicians, I think, will jump on our backs. Jim, down there. Sir. You told us what war the Swedes were preparing yeah. for. Can you give us any idea of what next war we should be preparing for? I've got no idea, sir, but I'm sure there are people in the audience who will give that a shot. <laughs> it'll, Peter? it'll be Sandy. Sandy. <laughs> Jim, can I Sandy. ask you, let sir. me can, let, just personalize this for yes. when you were on the way to the Falklands, yep. given your level of experience and so on, what was going through your head and I how prepared did you feel? I, I felt, uh, although I was a senior registrar uh, and I, I had six years of higher training. I had vascular as you did as well. I'd been in Bath's, I'd been in, in Hackney, I'd been in, I had a superb training. I was within months of becoming a consultant, but I was absolutely terrified of not being able to cope. I had visions and nightmares of extended laparotomies, thoracolaparotomies, horrendous injuries, back of the liver. In fact, of course, as you know, war surgery is not like that in most cases. But I was, we, were, we were all very nervous. Uh, we, we, fortunately, it was a journey by sea, and we were able to practice and practice and practice with the equipment. Get it out of its boxes, assemble it, um, role play it, get used to it. Because it's very, very it was very unfamiliar to all of us who, by that stage, were senior registrars in mainly civilian hospitals. There was one cable injury in the Falklands, inferior vena cava, uh, and that casualty didn't survive. If that casualty arrives, alive now and help me if that casualty will survive. Just, just, just to touch further on the personal thing, uh, one of my colleagues who came down with me, no names, no pactual, some of you may know him, who was doing triage with us, very tough, roughy, toughy para, uh, and still a lovely man, uh, was and is, and by the end of the first couple of hours, he had developed the most terrible stutter and couldn't carry on, and that's when George Rudge stepped in. And that young man, now an older man, has a stutter to this day, so it can be very damaging.
final question, please, on this uh, topic. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've wondered about whether we've got the uh, capability or will continue to have the capability and where the next conflict will be. Increasingly, the conflict is coming onto the homeland and uh, the terrorist threat. Uh, can we be confident that our civilian hospitals will be able to cope or can at this moment cope in any way near to the standard that we're getting out in Helmand? All I'll say to you is things are a damn sight better than they were 20 years ago when I was a senior registrar. We now have in London at least four level one uh, uh, trauma centers uh, who are being trained. Uh, certainly if you go to the Royal London, to St. George's, to, uh, uh, to St. Mary's or to King's, you, uh, to their A&E departments, their resource rooms, you will see that standard of care. They've bought, fully bought into military doctrine. They know about um, delayed primary closure. They know about damage control resuscitation. They know about the concept of moving. It's the nearest thing they've got to MERT, uh, basically, is, is the air ambulance, which now largely moves by car. So yes, I, I'm, I'm not as pessimistic as I was. Things could be better. Certainly in London, at least, and certainly in, in some of our larger cities, Edinburgh, Manchester, Liverpool, things have moved forward enormously in terms of training and acceptance of the lessons that we've learned, I believe. Jim, thank you. Thank Thanks. you very much indeed. I'm absolutely fascinated to know what you're going to say, uh, Julia, reportage. Um, it, the, the word isn't new to me, but I think the content might be. Please. Well, uh, hello. I'm very conscious that um, we're the only non-medic speaking in this uh, room today, so um, bear with me. But um, I'm also very grateful to be given the opportunity to talk to you. Um, I'm a reportage artist, and um, during my career, medicine has produced a large amount of my subject matter. War art and war artists have also been a personal interest. And um, I suppose arguably you could say that the genre of sending or appointing official war artists and sending them to the front was a very British tradition and could have originated in the UK, but let's not go down that. So... Um, I'm going to give you a whistle-stop tour because there's so many things I could talk about and there isn't time for all of it. Um, I'm going to give you a whistle-stop tour of um, war artists in the 20th century, but very, very light touch on those. I want to continue on to um, peacetime artists, but artists who looked at medicine for subject matter. And then I also want to talk about surgeons or medics who've influenced artists and directed them towards medical subject matter. And then surgeon artists before, all of this is a sort of introduction to the project called War Art and Surgery, which I've been working on with the Royal College of Surgeons here and with Sam Alberti um, for the past three years. Uh, so I'll, that will take up the latter half of this talk. Here's a couple of familiar pictures from World War I, uh, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. This is The Men in Road by Paul Nash. Um, they both studied at the Slade, as did Stanley Spencer. But Stanley Spencer joined the RAMC 
1915. Um, this painting was called Travois Arriving with the Wounded, and it was painted in Macedonia. Christopher Nevinson, uh, one of the most famous artists of, of World War I, was notorious as being difficult to love. Uh, I think he was regarded something, as something of a wide boy. Um, he was also at the Slade and was advised by his tutor to abandon all thoughts of an artistic career, uh, largely because he was quite a difficult character. Um, I think that he may well have been the figure that Pat Barker based her character Kit Neville on from uh, Life Class, her book. Um, his tutor who uh, gave him that advice was Henry Tonks. Um, William Alpin, also at the Slade uh, before the war, um, was one of the most hugely successful artists at the time anyway, and particularly well known for his work during World War I. He was appointed an official war artist in 1917, knighted in 1918, and elected a fellow of the Royal Academy in 1919. Um, he was taught by Tonks who, of course, you know, was a surgeon before he turned into an artist. Um, but Orpen produced a series of anatomical drawings for the, he later went on to be a teacher himself at the Slade. And uh, these anatomical drawings are quite large, and I'm sure his interest was um, stimulated by Tonks. These are drawn on black paper in chalk. There's, the portfolio contains about a dozen of them, and they've just come into the collection of the Tate Gallery, so you would be able to um, find them and go and look at them if you, if you want to. Um, but of course, Orpen wasn't a medic. Uh, there were a lot of slides of medical subject matter and uh, from World War II, but I haven't got time to go into them now. I was going to show you a Hodgson Lobley, but someone showed it yesterday, so uh, I, I, no point repeating it. Uh, this painting is... Um, just showing the treatment of burns and saline solution at um, East Grinstead, which, of course, is where, as I'm sure you all know, where McKinday worked. Um, in peacetime, um, of course, doctors continued um, to influence artists, and in this case, um, Barbara Hepworth's daughter suffered from osteomyelitis. Uh, and this caused Hepworth to spend time at Exeter Hospital. And that is where she met a surgeon, Norm, a Norman Capener. Uh, he was also a painter with a special interest in modern art. And he persuaded her to produce this wonderful portfolio of drawings. Uh, I think there's a reproduction, or is there an original here in this building? But... Um, they are a fantastic series of drawings. She was particularly interested in surgeons' hands and that sort of ballet dance that they're very graceful hands um, take. Um, anyway, I'm hesitating. I mustn't waste time. I've been told not to waste time. Um, Diana Orpen, also known as Dickie Orpen, uh, was the daughter of William Orpen. And William had always instructed his children in no way to follow an artistic career. But he did, uh, in fact, 
forbid them to even consider the prospect of artistic career. But he did spot Diana's sketchbook uh, when they were on holiday, and as a result, approached his friend and former tutor, Henry Tonks, and showed him the sketchbook, and Tonks agreed. He, he was by then was in his final year of teaching at Slay, and he agreed to take Diana on. I think she was only 14 at the time. Uh, she went on to work at the maxillofacial unit at St. Albans through World War II, I think, and uh, continued to practice as a medical illustrator till well into the 1970s. And her drawings are beautiful. I'm sure Brian Morgan will tell you more about it. There was an exhibition of her work, I think, um, 10 years ago. And um, they're really wonderful drawings. Tonks, she said, told her that the only drawings he was not ashamed of were those that he made for Gillies. Now, um, Susan McFarlane produced this wonderful painting, and it's one of two portfolios she made. This one's called A Picture of Health, and it's about um, cancer care. And she was um, invited to produce this series of drawings by another surgeon, Jeffrey Farrah Brown, and uh, this set of work was produced in 1992 to 94. And she went on to produce a second portfolio called Living with Leukemia. It's all about childhood leukemia and how families deal with that. Um, sadly, she died some years later after a terrible accident that was slipping up outside her studio and landing on head on a stone. But they are truly wonderful drawings. And um, she drew from life, as did Tonks as does Sir Roy Kahn, eminent transplant surgeon, I'm sure needs no introduction to you. Um, but he now describes himself, interestingly, as a professional artist. Um, he uses his portraits, uh, well, sorry, he, he portrays his, por his patients, oh, I can't speak. He makes drawings of his patients face to face. They sit very close to one another and um, he sits and draws them. He thinks they gain um, a therapeutic benefit from this procedure. Uh, and practice. He also uses his drawings in his own lectures. So the drawing you can see here on the left is one of his diagrams. Um, but the drawing on the right is one of my drawings of him giving a lecture at the medical institution in Liverpool. And the slide that he's showing behind him um, is a Royal Academician, John Bellany, who I don't know if you're familiar with his work. John Bellany um, had a bad liver because he did enjoy a drink and um, Roy transplanted his, li his liver and during a recovery, the patient gave lessons to the surgeon. Uh, as a result of their, they became lifelong friends. And um, Bellany, after he recovered, um, made a portrait of Roy, which now hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. Um, so that's a sort of nice circular story. Um, another surgeon is an American, Joe Wilder. Are, are you familiar with this work at all? Um, he made a prodigious amount of uh, paintings about his own career and his work and his working space. And the difference here, though, is I don't know if you can see this, but he worked from photographs. And there is very much a, 
a different sort of emphasis um, or field paintings that are made as a result of photographs as opposed to those drawn directly on location. Um, they tend to have a more complete feel to them. They tend to have more colour in them and, and um, they tend also to be larger quite often. He recorded his surgery in America and um, between 1990 and 2003, uh, he was uh, an Air Force doctor. <laughs> in um, 1959, uh, he saved the leg of Zero Mostel, who in turn advised his surgeon to take up painting. <laughs> it's quite a nice story, really. Uh, and obviously, he took his advice. Um, at the beginning of my project, War Art and Surgery, uh, the first place I was sent to uh, to make the first drawing, which you'll see later, was um, at a hospex in um, Yorkshire. And as soon as I got there and got out my, my tool, my tools, my equipment, very simple, um, everybody said, oh, do you, have you heard of Gora Patak? Has anyone here heard of Gora Patak? Um, he's a serving military surgeon and uh, an artist, and these are some of his watercolours from Iraq, I think. He sent me a lot of his slides, but unfortunately there isn't time to show all of them to you. Um, at, this is me at the Royal Liverpool and Broad Green Hospital. I, I was working there as artist-in-residence from 97 to 99, and it was about that time that the Tonks work, drawing, the drawings that are upstairs at the moment, came into the care of the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, it was at the end of that project that um, the works produced in Liverpool came here to be exhibited. And that was my first encounter um, when I came to see the exhibition with the Henry Tonks drawing. One of the things um, during the two years I spent at Liverpool, at the hospital in Liverpool, um, was that every single day I was working there, somebody on the staff, either from nursing assistant to um, most high-ranking surgeon, would come along and say that either they thought they'd be an artist or go to art school, or someone in their family was an artist, or their, one of their parents was an artist, and that um, this would happen so frequently that it's much more than coincidence. There is definitely some link between the arts and, and medicine. I don't know that what it is quite, but I think it's to do with the fact that, well, from my point of view, artists, they need to be imaginative. They need to respond to things on the spot. They need to um, not be afraid of breaking rules. They need to have sensitive hands. And they need to be able to think in three dimensions. And they have to understand the structure of the thing that they're drawing. Um, well, for example, I mean, I've always had a skeleton in my office. Um, when I was, I've just retired from teaching in art schools for about 35 years, and, and I always had a skeleton in my office. And, and at art school, we were always taught in life rooms to draw the skeleton first. So it's that knowledge, that three-dimensional knowledge, that's enabled a drawing to look convincing. So there are an awful lot of similarities, I think, except that artists don't go around practicing surgery, <laughs> surgeons seem to be happy to do 
the other way around, which is very bad for business, I have to say. <laughs> Do you think so? <laughs> so um, we come to war art and surgery. Um, in 2011, um, the idea to reflect tonks and to look at military surgery today sort of began to grow in my mind. Um, and I came to talk to um, Sam, and uh, they were already planning to exhibit the Tonkses, and uh, were looking for a contemporary uh, juxtaposition uh, to, to exhibit alongside or opposite the Tonkses that looked at medicine today. Um, initially, I was hoping to make some drawings of um, maxillofacial surgery, but of course the nature of injuries coming back from Afghanistan is very different to those coming back from the trenches. Um, so the, the brief, as it were, changed slightly. But basically, what I've been doing is to pay homage to and recognize the remarkable Henry Tonks pastels upstairs um, and show you a different sort of picture now. So the drawings that I've made are very much made on one sheet of paper that I sit on my knee and I make the drawing with my complicated equipment. And um, that same piece of paper is then developed in my studio and ends up in a frame. So the first piece of paper that's on my knee that's on location, wherever that is, if I think it's okay when it's finished, goes in a frame. I don't start again anywhere. Um, I think it lends authenticity and immediacy, and I don't like starting again. I, I don't need a camera either, nor does Tonks, and um, nor does Roy Kahn. So initial discussions began in 2011, and gradually, step by step, we managed to find people in the military, uh, one of whom the most sort of helpful people I met was um, Kevin Beaton, who was just mentioned, who draws, he has a wonderful whiteboard in the back of his office with some fantastic diagrams of the route that the patient takes from being on the ground in Afghanistan to coming to Birmingham. So I knew I had him on my side when I saw that in my work. But of course, the most famous surgery, as we know, was um, in World War I, was that of um, Harold Gillies. And um, the set of drawings that Tonks made are just phenomenal. But they're phenomenal for all sorts of reasons from an artist's point of view. These um, obviously do act as uh, medical teaching notes, but they're much more than that. They, they, the personality of the sitter comes out from these portraits, I think. Um, the other thing about the Tonks is that he's working pastels. It's a notoriously difficult medium to handle. It's, um, it smudges really easily. It's very difficult to put detail in, and yet Tonks makes it look so simple. But he was sitting there in close proximity with his patients, using pastel, and really difficult, really difficult thing to have done. But these drawings, they work on the two levels. They enable assessment of medical progress, and they record the personal sacrifices of the soldiers. The patients probably never saw the drawings, um, but the process of being scrutinized by Tonks was reassuring to them. Um, they were accustomed, of course, to people averting their gaze from their injuries. These drawings remained in a medical setting, obviously during the interwar years, but 
were rarely considered alongside Thompson's general output. Um, but now, of course, you know, they're part of much greater resource and they're accessible to the general public, medical professionals, artists, authors, and filmmakers. So um, I couldn't possibly hope to emulate what he did. And in a way, the fact that we have a different change for each was, was helpful. Uh, my tribute began um, in Yorkshire at Strensel Camp. And this is the first of 155 drawings that were produced during the project. Uh, this is a hospex exercise. And um, you might, I don't know if you can make out the annotations at the top left-hand side, but it says, military artist, Wing Commander Gora Patak. So, you know, <laughs> day one, we're talking about surgeons who are artists. So I had to keep my game up, you know. And here's another slide. Uh, Jim's just shown you uh, a similar slide of the um, training hospital in Yorkshire. Um, they also have a cosmetic department there where they um, produce synthetic prosthetic uh, injuries um, on amputee actors, some of whom are civilians, some of whom are military, um, and some of them perfectly fit serving soldiers. And this is one who's modeling as a Burns patient. Uh, this is another amputee actor called Ashley, who um, has a rather gruesome sense of humour, which I won't repeat for you now. But you can, you can imagine sort of things that might you might come up with. But that's, um, as you can see, a fairly convincing um, piece of prosthetic cosmetic. This is one of my drawings of a head injury, uh, and. Again, I'm I know you've seen this slide already because I think Matt Mick showed it to you yesterday. Um, again, another amputee actor with a prosthetic wing. So, having been to Strensel Camp, uh, which I visited on several occasions, um, we then moved to Headley Court. And it was really wonderful that they let us in because they get a lot of requests for people to make films or to take photographs there. And um, they recognized, I think, that we were dealing with a very academic exercise with our proposal to them. And the other thing that really, if, if somebody sits with a piece of paper and a pencil, um, they're really not presenting a very invasive presence, whereas someone with um, photographic equipment is perhaps not what you want to be confronted with when you're struggling to get used to your new legs or um, recover from your injuries. Of course, um, Headley Court's beautiful, the garden's beautiful, uh, but these gardens, they also have a particular function, particularly the undulating gravel paths. Uh, and here you can see um, left, uh, Captain Sinnott, who is undergoing what they call a boot camp and he's been walking up and down these paths and over bridges and ornamental parts of the gardens. And this is a drawing of him immediately afterwards, uh, getting his breath back. Um, Andy Reid, um, I was just going to talk about a few of the patients and some of their stories. Andy um, lost three limbs and his... Uh, left arm was damaged as well. You can see there's a sort of skin graft 
hold it up on his hand. He has rebuilt his life as a motivational speaker. He's also written a book. And um, he came here, actually, I'll, I'll show you another slide about him. And he came here for a filmed interview last year. Um, this is him last year here in this building. Uh, and one of the questions the interviewers asked him was about the process of being drawn and the drawing that had been made at Headley Court. Oops, sorry, didn't mean to do that. <laughs> um, so this is the drawing that's made at Headley Court and they asked him what he thought about this drawing. And he said, Julia's drawing looks a bit incomplete, but without my legs, I'm a bit incomplete too. And that quote's in the book that we have. And, um, He's uh, really remarkable and um, has a child now and a successful career. Um, this is a familiar sight at Headley Court, uh, legs charging up overnight. Um, uh, I'll talk about Ricky. This is the patient here shortly, but also uh, perhaps you've noticed that I work on all sorts of different types of paper. Uh, the paper is often tinted, it's handmade, it's thick quality, it's printmaker's paper sometimes, it's watercolour paper other times, sometimes it's graph paper. But the paper is the first choice that I make before I make a mark. And that's because it sets the scene. And if I think it's appropriate, and in this case it's sort of beige coloured paper, but then, you know, the colours that were surrounding the room and the subject matter, it, it seemed apt use that as does watercolor I think you know I'm dealing with delicacy and, but I'm also dealing with visceral wounds so why would you use watercolor for to describe a visceral wound but the thing is I'm not drawing the moment of impact I'm not drawing the trauma itself I'm drawing the aftermath those quiet moments when someone's dealing with the discomfort of his prosthetic legs or the challenge of learning to walk again so it seemed to me appropriate to use a light touch aesthetic. Why drawings and not photographs? Often people say, well, they perform very different functions. But as I think I mentioned before, a drawing, I can record moments and hours on one sheet of paper, whereas with a camera, it's a fraction of a second. Uh, also, artists are given access to moments of intimacy and privacy, often not accorded to filmmakers and photographers. I can chat to people when I'm drawing. I just sit there and talk. Um, this was an important moment for me because this was the first moment for the patient um, towards his recovery. These short legs are called stubbies, which you probably know. And um, this was Justin's first moment on his stubbies. And I, I realized that I was the only person in the room with him uh, when I was about to start drawing. and. and um, felt slightly uncomfortable about that, thinking I was invading his privacy perhaps a bit too much, but he insisted I stay and um, was perfectly happy. So he showed a great generosity of spirit there. He's now discharged and um, I think he's going to be a carpenter in the New Forest. Um, this is in the pool at Headley Court, uh, watercolour being particularly apt in this case, but um, the reason I've chosen this slide to show you is that in the background there are Two drawings of a girl. Uh, it's actually the same person. Um, 
who I saw 12 months later in the gym at Headley Court, but there was something different. Um, she'd had an elected to have her injured limb amputated and said it was the best thing she'd ever done. Uh, these portraits, the next few slides, are probably the closest our project came to reflecting Tonks's work. This is Andy Crossland in 2012, and here he is one year later following his surgery. These drawings are slightly larger than Tonks's, but that's um, a third again in size. Again, different color background papers. John Dawson here in 2013, uh, um, a bullet had gone through his chin, had taken his um, right eye out and come out here. Uh, when I was sitting doing this portrait, we had a conversation, you know, as when I was sitting doing that portrait, we had a completely rational conversation. This is John uh, in April this year. And of course, you know, I was sitting very close, just across the table. So it was a very similar process to that of Tonks, you know, face to face. And these drawings were made upstairs here in the Royal College of Surgeons during the most course. Pen and ink for change, often if something's happening at speed or if it's um, in the field, as it were, I'll use a pen. And the, la the last of the four venues that I um, spent time at was Bryce Norton. This is on board a Hercules aircraft for a CCAS tra uh, course. In this case, the course was training one A&E sister for in-flight care. Uh, what staggered me was uh, the amount of equipment they took with them, all the batteries they needed, because you can't plug into mains electricity on a plane. You know, Just amazing. Um, the attention to detail was a complete eye-opener for me. Of course, as a layperson, you have no idea what's going on. You just assume it all happens, but don't think about how it happened. Uh, this is a Merlin, and um, they'd said to me several times, we'll get you up in a helicopter, Julia. We will, we will, you know. And the, uh, the fourth visit to Bry's, where the, with, the weather was always filthy every time I went there. Uh, and this day was just as bad. You can see there are a few bits of, what's it called, um, where you get a mixture of rain and snow. Thank you, sleet. There it is, you can see it. Anyway, there's the helicopter. It was going dark, and they finally said, okay, we can go. So here I am working on board, and I was sitting at the very last seat on the side of the helicopter. And <laughs> you know there's a ramp at the back. You get onto the upper ramp, and uh, we set off in flight, and it was brilliant. They were going up and down and all around, every sort of simulating flight in the worst conditions, I suppose, that they might meet in Afghanistan. Um, and then for some reason, they, the ramp opened. And I, I, um, I draw on loose sheets of paper. They're not tied down or anything. And um, this is the drawing that I was starting at the time. And you can see on the left-hand side, there's nothing really much there on this drawing. That's because my hand was there holding it, the paper in because it was flapping like this, you know. And... Um, there was the door, well, not the door, the ramp, wide open. So that was a bit of a moment. But anyway, um, that's why that drawing's got not much on the left-hand side. Uh, the ramp closed, 
And so um, I was able to do a more complete piece <laughs> of this afterwards. And I was quite pleased because I didn't go green. I didn't feel sick, but some of the nurses opposite did. So I felt a certain amount of victory in that. Um, so the whole portfolio, all 155 drawings were all made in the UK. Um, I didn't travel to Afghanistan. They were all made in the field, in this case, literally. Um, from the life of the workplace of medics and the recovery wards of the patients. And, you know, it's been a real education. Um, one of the other things I learned is never lend, you know, always be careful when you lend your camera to someone else or brief them properly about what you want in the photograph because he must have waited till his commanding officer started to scratch his bottom. <laughs> and, and at first I was trying to think, oh, I've got to edit this photograph, but if I just cut myself out of the photo, well, anyway, so there you are. There's a <laughs> I won't tell you who the commanding officer was. <laughs> So, I mean, this is the last slide, but I, I really I wanted to say that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Royal College of Surgeons and to the military for letting me in and for helping to produce this portfolio of work um, for all sorts of reasons. But I, I've just learned so much. There was so much I was unaware of. And I know that the patients at Headley Court, who I drew, are very keen that the drawings um, are seen by as many people as possible to reflect the struggle that they go through towards their rehabilitation. So I'm very grateful to them and to the military. And um, if you want to know any more about the project, there is the book upstairs in the shop. So thank you very much. talked about paying homage to another artist. I think I'd know how to pay homage to a fellow surgeon or, or his technique. I'd copy it because it's a good technique. Yeah. How do you pay homage to a fellow artist? Well, that's a very good question. I think that the fact that his works were there were enough to make me want to go and make this project. I think that's in a way tribute perhaps rather than homage, but it's his work's so, so strong, and, and it, as I said, it was from that first encounter with the drawings that, that made me think for quite a few years, I must try and do something about military medicine now, but you couldn't hope to do the same thing as another artist. You never would, anyway. Um, but it, would, it, wouldn't ha if you, it wouldn't have your escutcheon stamped on it, would it? If you no, no, no. I mean, every, every artist I know, that their drawings are like a signature, you know, it should be identifiably yours, and, and that's probably it, but... All I can do is say, you know, I wouldn't have done this if he hadn't done his work, probably, you know. But Any uh, hands up for, for, yeah. Thank you very much. Sir. Thank you very much for your uh, talk. Fascinating. Can you just elaborate? I get the impression these are quite rapid drawings, and you yes. mentioned ink and pen. Yes. And I'd like to know why one is better than the other. Oh, well, one isn't necessarily better than the other, but I think if you're in a, um, a clinical se setting or if you're having to work um, in close proximity to patients, then um, I want to make sure that the drawing's absolutely right. In a pencil, you can rub out, yes. you know. And yeah. um, also, 
you can get, I, well, I, I think I can get a greater degree of um, sensitivity with a pencil. I, I, you know, I love these pencils. They're very specific pencils. These are Steichler Mars, and you can get a really good sharp point on them. And, um, I just feel completely confident. And when I'm drawing someone face to face, like those portraits, I need to not be nervous, not to be worried about anything going wrong because I only have a very short period of time with them. You know, there's only maybe 40 minutes that I can spend with them. So, yes, you're right, they have to be rapid, but they need to be accurate too. So I think the pencil is less risky in that situation. And did, sorry to continue, but did, Please. do you know how long Tonks took to do those pastels? And did he do work on them? He did them face to face, but did he, he did. complete them face to face? Well, uh, Sam might know more than I do. I don't really know. I would have thought he would take about an hour or so on those uh, finished drawings. With pastel, you do need to build it up, and I wouldn't have thought it could, they could be done in much less than an hour. It did do one watercolour, which is um, yes. on that final slide of mine, but... Um, and in the matter of homage to Tonks, I mm. just wondered whether you'd seen... Gil is it Gilbert's work on the Saving Faces project? Yes, I have, yes. And Mark whether you wanted to comment on that at all? Well, I think they're wonderful. I think they're um, very very different to mine because they're much larger and they're much, um, well, they're paintings rather than drawings. And so he always had longer sittings, I imagine. I think probably two or three sittings with each patient. But they're very dramatic, aren't they? They're really excellent, very powerful. Mm. Andrew. I'm never quite clear whether Tonks did actually finish his pastels face to face, but certainly the operative drawings he would do very quickly on a piece of tracing paper. Uh, and then disappear off out and rework them onto a proper sheet of paper. Oh, did he? And there are quite a lot of examples of that actually in the case notes. Oh, really? Well, um, I'd love to see those. Really. So really if have, have a look through the case notes. Yes. I was just, though, going to say that I think there is a precedent for an artist becoming a surgeon, and he's actually in this room, and his name is Brian Morgan, but you uh -huh. might correct me if I'm wrong. I shall interview him later. <laughs> Please. Kind of a follow-on question, really. Uh, you, you said that pastels are particularly difficult, so mm. I wondered why Tonks had chosen that as a media for, for doing his pieces. I'm also interested in, in some of the uh, surgeons that were war artists, uh, and I've got interested in a young surgeon called Howard Somerville, who became a fa famous climber after the war, oh, really? but he was worked in one of the casualty clearing stations uh, at the Somme. And I think his way of relaxing was to do watercolour paintings uh, with one of the war artists. Uh, oh, really? In that area. I wonder who um, that was that he was working with. I, I think it was Lena Rosenstein. Oh, Ro Lena Rossman. Ro yes, maybe, yeah. Yes, um, he's, he's a Royal Academician now. He's still alive. And that was right. And there was a place called Vecmont, quite near the front lines on the mm, Somme. Mm. Uh, and I think they would go out together. And I'm sure that was Somerville's way of sort of trying to get away from the, yes, could the be. hard work he was doing in, in the clearing station yeah, as a yeah. surgeon. Yes, I'm sure it would have been. Um, what was the first part of your... Oh, yeah. pastels. So pastels and yeah. kind of watercolours. Uh, you know, watercolours, I guess, were, were more readily available and easier to transport for the surgeons. And, and why would, why would, why would Tonks, uh, use Tonks use pastels? I, I think he must just have felt it was the most appropriate thing. Maybe he felt it was more visceral because of the nature of the wounds. But, I mean, they're terribly dusty. You know, they create dust and chalky dust. You'd think that... He wouldn't, as a surgeon, want those particles floating about, really. But um, I, I don't know why he chose them. But mo usually artists, when they're working, they, they select a, a medium 
when they're in a given short access um, that they know they feel confident with. So maybe he just was really happy, because he was a painter, really. And they, they do make a very much more painterly mark. And so those drawings upstairs are, are more like paintings than they are drawings in a way. So that might have been it. But it's pure speculation, that. But I'd imagine that would be why. Any other points? Or for Jim, uh, down here, please. I wanted to ask from an artist's point of view, uh, obviously Tonks was a surgeon so he kind of had the medical background yeah. and you were saying that you don't get much time and I wondered um, what's your personal thought process when you go about making a drawing, like what do you find is the most important things to capture that you, you first go for? Um, that's a really good question actually. It, it, very often if I'm led into a room or an operating theatre or somewhere at a hospex, I, I actually, this will be the first time I've ever encountered something like that. So the first thing I try and do is, is take stock, really, and, and try and understand what's happening. And sometimes I'm given a guided tour um, first thing in the day, if that's possible, which helps. Um, and then you have to find somewhere you can sit where you're not going to be in anybody's way, because after all, I'm always working in someone else's workspace. So I rely very much on their tolerance. Having found the right spot to be where it, which gives a, a decent view and doesn't intrude on people, then I start to work like a visual editor. So I look for, is that, is that good? Is that, and and it, it's sort of almost like framing. You know when you hold a camera up, you, you look for a viewfinder. Well, effectively, that's where I do my eyes. I'm selecting a composition. And, and, and gradually, the more you practice doing it, the better you get at editing as you go along. And, and you have your paper which you've already chosen a size and a weight of and as you make the drawing you sort of edit what you're not going to put in and what you are going to put in and eventually in my case it's always people that I'm interested in and the positions they make and are, are they making an interesting almost a shape as, as a composition and does that composition tell the story that you should be telling you know, so there's two aspects. It's one, the composition, because I need to satisfy myself aesthetically that it's the right thing. But it, that's all very well. It has to tell a story as well. It's got to be informative as well. So, And then, and sometimes if I worry about it, oh, I'll, I'll make some little notes on, on the drawing as well, which I usually leave there as you would have noticed. Mm. Julia, fantastic presentation. Sorry, I lifted your mic. Can you hear me? Fantastic presentation. You very movingly said that many of the young men and women wanted you to paint them and draw them because mm. they, want, they, they want their suffering, if you will, translated onto a piece of paper. Did you encounter the opposite? Did you encounter anyone who just said, you're not going to, I'm not going to allow you to draw me? And um, if so, why, what, did they, what reason do they give? I didn't actually know, no. but I know that they'd all been prepared In before advance. I arrived that this is what I was going to be yeah. doing. And if anybody didn't want to be drawn, then they were free up. to say. Well, they sort of had to turn up because they had schedules yeah. and timetables of where they had to be. Yeah. There was only one guy who uh, was weightlifting and at first felt he didn't really want to be drawn, but then actually he changed his mind. And I think it was just because he was actually training. He wanted to get into the Paralympics. So he didn't want the distraction. So it wasn't the process of being drawn he objected sure. to. He wanted to get good at weightlifting. Um, and in fact, that drawing's now one of the... Um, uh, portfolio you know so no surprisingly they were all very good one guy kept texting me saying look i'm in physio now where are you <laughs> yeah. 
Thanks very much, David. <laughs> At the back, please. <coughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Richard Matthews, uh, another uh, point for Julia, and then a question, please. Uh, the first point uh, goes back to Andrew's paper yesterday uh, when he mentioned that Gillies was a polymath and the only thing he left out of that was that he actually was also a very gifted painter, mm. uh, painted oils uh, to a reasonable standard. Uh, he also allegedly played a complete round of golf not far off his handicap with a putter. That's another story. Um, my my question to you is that you clearly had a, a very intimate journey through both military and medical sphere. Mm. I just wonder how that affected you personally. Yes, people have asked this a few times. I think um, the personal impact was much greater at Headley Court, um, if for no other reason than that I've got two sons, you know, and they're roughly the same age as a lot of those patients. And that's... Um, that you know, stays in your mind quite a lot of the time when you're drawing them. And then um, I think the other effect was that uh, I look at um, all sorts of disabilities in a completely different way now, you know, and, and wonder how, how did they get to be disabled, what happened, you know, and it is very affecting. Uh, and. Um, it's difficult. I'm not a wordsmith, really. It's rather difficult to put it into, into words, but it's a very moving thing to see. And it's particularly moving to be allowed in there in the first place. Uh, and I think the patients themselves never, ever talked to me about the loss of a limb. You know, they never talked about that. They just talked about uh, where they were going next, which is pretty salutary, really. So I think it's... Um, certainly makes you stop complaining about, I don't know, the oven not working. <laughs> you know. But yeah, it does affect in all sorts of ways. Really. It's difficult to elucidate what it is until you notice it some later date. Did you get inside the head of soldiers, do you think? Um, I don't know. No, I mean... Uh, oh, oh, sorry, I thought you did you get inside the... No, no. Did you get in, in terms of military humour? Uh, oh, definitely, did, did, yes. Yeah. We would have enjoy a good degree of banter and and laughter, and often they, they they always asked if I draw dogs. <laughs> Will you draw my dog? <laughs> Andrew. If I can just come back to Richard and say that while Gillies did paint, he only painted landscapes. He, ah. couldn't, he couldn't paint faces. <laughs> and, and the most graphic uh, evidence of that is a picture that's still in the possession of the family of the dining room on Christmas Day. Uh, where over the mantelpiece hangs a portrait of his grandmother and the top of the frame cuts the portrait in half <laughs> so that there is no face on it. <laughs> Sir Miles, please. In a few days' time, um, there's going to be the launch of uh, um, uh, a book of the paintings of a man called David Minot. And David Minot has been um, playing his part uh, in rehabilitation uh, of people, soldiers with PTSD and the like, uh, by taking them over to his property uh, in Mallorca, where he and his wife have about 10 to 15 patients at a time, and he teaches them to paint 
mm. to cope with their disabilities. Yeah. Uh, what's your views on um, whether this is um, a useful way of coping with their abilities and whether um, it uh, could come into the sort of uh, um, uh, situation where painting and medicine uh, work together? Um, well, I did meet a patient who what had taken up watercolour painting at, at Headley Court, and, uh, and he did derive... It is a very diverting thing to do, and you do need to concentrate quite hard when you're doing it. But I think, I think you have to want to do it. It's like anything. I, I don't think it will work as any sort of useful therapy if the patient was not interested at all in learning how to draw or paint. So you, I think the first instance is they need to want to do it. Given that, um, I think, yes, it is. It, it's, it's diverting. It diverts your attention from perhaps your injuries or your recovery process. Uh, and there is an end product. You know, there's something you can hold in your hand and say, oh, I did that. I'm going to get better next time. Or, and the... There are so many different media that um, someone can produce a, an artwork with, but there's a lot there to learn about. Well, I suppose like almost any art form, really. But um, I, I've certainly heard a lot of people say they have derived a lot of benefit from painting and drawing. And, and it's um, a thoughtful process, too, so it does engage your mind as well as making the product. John. Um, in Brighton, there were five military hospitals. John Richardson. Where here, are you? Here I am. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there were five military hospitals, uh, which up until January 1916 were used by Indian soldiers for, from France. Mm. Then when the Indian Corps moved out to Mesopotamia, other injured people with limbs, um, injuries and all sorts of things like that, were, were moved into Brighton. And the Brighton School of Art took soldiers who were inclined to that mm. and they were taught to paint. Really? And um, some of these skills were like sign writing, others were like posters and, and drawing. So there was a deliberate mm. uh, occupational therapy for those who were inclined there. And in the Brighton University, I think in the art school, there, are, there is a small display about soldiers in the First World How War. How interesting. When was this? Where is it? No, when was it? Um, it happened in 1916. Oh, oh, oh see, gosh. Um, and I don't know how long it went on, but it was certainly more than a year, probably for the whole war. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. How interesting. Yeah, and there's a display in, in, the, in the Brighton School of Art um, showing soldiers actually doing their painting. <laughs> Thank you, I didn't know that. Any other? Yes, one, one more. Thank you. Um, you talked about how Thomas Pastels perhaps um, were imbued with more of a sense of the sitter's personality and emotions than a photograph might have done. And I was just wondering to what extent you agree with Emma Chambers that his pastels kind of not only reflected the physical reconstruction, but by doing the before and after, they reflected perhaps a reconstruction of identity of the patient. Um, well, I think Emma's essay is, is, is really excellent. I think that um, she's got a very valid point there. Really. I don't know how the patients themselves felt about their identity, whether that was altered or not. But I, I, for me, when I look at those before and after drawings... Last one. I think you can, you can still recognise the person if you look in the eyes, particularly. 
from before and after. And you can see the personality coming through, especially when they've endured so much and so much time during the process. That the sort of personality that I read in those drawings is one that comes through a lot. I, I don't read it so much as identity. So, you know, it's a difficult question, that, to answer when you haven't got the individual to say... Andrew. I, I can answer it. Can um, you? Not, not with the drawings themselves, but with photographs. Um, I've discovered through my researches of f through families that a large number of the patients were actually given sets of photographs to take home. Really? And I can think of no other reason for this than that they were able to look back through the series of photographs mm. and see how bad they would have been had they not been reconstructed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for your attention. Jim Masterly, um, Victoria, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a naffy break, folks. Yes, Jim. Thank you very much.